Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast. Bombs over Belgrade, part 3. The previous two episodes took us through the Kosovan War and took the national side through France 98. This time, it's time to catch up with domestic football and to see the man who destroyed the state in Slobodan Milosevic leave the scene once and for all. In the summer of 1996, rising Belgrade club Obilic were bought up by Zelko Arkan Raznatovic. Arkan had done well out of being, for a time, the ultimate survivor through the Yugoslav era, and keeping himself impeccably connected through the Yugoslav wars, spinning his criminal mind into a criminal empire, into a military presence, and a series of legitimate, uh, with quotation marks, um, business enterprises. While the generosity of the state didn't extend to selling him Svena's fiesta, which he did attempt to do, Little Old Oblich were fair, fair game. On purchasing the club, he wanted to immediately lift it to the top of football in the Federated Republic of Yugoslavia, and the band of fans and strays that had followed him to war as part of his Tigers were suddenly now back on the terraces, no longer as Delie or as his Tigers, but as Vitezovi, Oblich's knights. At this point, it probably is worth an explanation as to why Obelich. The club itself had been set up in 1924 as Obelich and experienced its greatest success during World War II, reaching the heights of third in the occupied Serbian league. Come Tito, while Obelich weren't wiped out of existence like BSK, they were renamed as FK Kuborac due to the overtly nationalist name that they possessed. However, Lacking the government support of Partizan and Zvezda, and lacking the popular support of OFK and Radnički, Obelich got their name back in the 50s, having already slid into obscurity, sitting in the lower tiers of local subdivisions around the 7th tier, until 1987 to rise back up as far as even the 3rd league, finding their way into the 2nd tier come the departure of Macedonian and Bosnian sides from the league, clearing the road for Obelich to progress. So their appeal for Arkan was relatively obvious, based in Belgrade, a club on the rise, and one that had had their nationalism clamped down upon in the past. The symbolism was there, and the potential was there. All they needed was someone with the ambition, and no one could ever accuse Arkan, whose legends suggested he once single-handedly robbed an entire cruise ship, and once robbed a bank across the road while waiting for a coffee, of lacking ambition. The first Arkan season of 96-97 would show that ambition. Promoted to the 1A league from 1B, winning that subdivision by 15 points while Partizan won the main title. Obelich would also reach the cup semi-final, falling only on penalties to eventual cup winners Svena Zvezda. This was only the beginning, as Obelich began to build ahead of a tilt at becoming champions of Yugoslavia in the 97-98 season. The first sign of this was in changing manager, bringing in Dragan Okuka. As a player, Okuka was a mainstay of Velez Mostal and had taken over there just before war broke out. He ended up breaking through as a coach at Minas Bese, 
who he took to a shock fourth in 1995 before a season at Kukurichi ahead of taking the job at Ovalich. That given Okuku was rated highly and linked to other more legitimate jobs was a shock in itself. What he'd managed to pull off that season would be even more of one. It's fair before getting into this to note two key factors. The first is that the Obelich team didn't actually have much spent on it. The side this season would be pretty similar to that from the season prior, which would be pretty similar to that the season after. And while some Obelich players would get international recognition, only Dragoslav Vjevric, who had left the club in 95, and Nikola Lazatic, who joined in early 99, would get enough caps to ever be accused of having an international career. This wasn't an especially strong squad, nor was it an especially promising one. The second factor is that Partizan and Sviesta weren't especially good either. Reigning champions Partizan sold most of their best players in 1997, with Dragan Siric going to Barcelona, Dejan Vukicevic to Sevilla, and Georgi Histov to um, Barnsley. Zviesta, meanwhile, were just in a bit of a difficult period for most of the decade, and this season would be no different. In short, there were three not very good sides competing for silverware, and one had to win it. But Obelich had an X factor, and that was Arkan himself. While it would sell the players short to suggest that Arkan was why Obelich rose to prominence, it's also fair to say that there was no other owner quite like him. Take, for example, the aforementioned Nikola Lazatic. Lazatic would join the club from Vojvodina, but where most transfers are carried out between intermediaries and clubs and lawyers, Lazatic was picked up, thrown into the boot of a car, and allowed out only when he signed a contract. The chairman, who initially refused to sell him, would later turn up dead. Arkan would also sit on the bench with Okuka, which, to be fair, he also did when leading the Delia at Sienna's Fiesta, famously being on the bench with Shecky on the day of the Maximir riot. After all, in spite of not having any known actual coaching education, Arkan was given his coaching badges by the FA. But what he did at Obelich that he didn't do when at Sienna's Fiesta was go into the dressing rooms of the opposition pre-match and threaten to kneecap players if they played well, which often had the desired effect. Against Sviesta, he would go in at half-time and told one player, be careful or I'll take care of your knees with a machine gun. Other players would get phone calls in the middle of the night before a game, ominously telling them the consequences of playing well versus Obelich. One referee, Zoran Arsic, claimed that he was once brought to Arkan's office and had a gun put to his head, and, when he told the FA, was told that he would never referee another Obelich game as long as he kept quiet. Other referees would report of similar threats being made at halftime if Arkan wasn't happy with how things were going. More traditional max fixing was rife also. Partizan are believed to have thrown a late-season league game against Obelich, so that Obelich would win the league at Sviesta's expense, while, in return, Obelich threw the cup final so Partizan could take home a trophy that season. It's also fair to note that Arkan and many others also benefited financially from this. 
A 2010's raid of records turned up that Arkan had siphoned millions from Oblich into his and his wife's bank accounts. More on her in a minute. He wasn't the only one. As the lawless nature of Serbia, and the fact that the economy was so based around smuggling from the wars and hadn't transitioned to legality, meaning that those who were rich were rarely rich honestly, made football a den of criminal intrigue. In the 10 years from 1995, 11 football club chairmen would fall prey to gangland executions. One of those chairmen was the chairman of Zelesnik, who had thought Arkan's purchase of Oblich was a great idea, and so tried to do exactly the same with Zelesnik. When Zelesnik was promoted to League 1A with Oblich, said chairman was quickly killed, as his ambitions had become simply too grand to be tolerated. The result of all of this was that Obelich, a club that was as anonymous as they come at the start of the decade, ended the 97-98 season as champions of FR Yugoslavia, which posed a whole new issue. Because while Zelko Arkan Raznatovic was seen as fair, a fit and proper person by the Serbian FA, UEFA unsurprisingly took a dim view of allowing a club run by a career criminal into the Champions League, and Arkan took an equally dim view at being denied it. This led to two somewhat farcical things. The first is that Arkan sent an actual hit squad to assassinate the head of UEFA, Lennart Johansson, only to see them fail to get a good location to take a shot while Johansson was visiting Vienna. The second was that Arkan had to transfer ownership of the club to someone, and that someone was a person even more used to headlines than Arkan himself. Svetlana Cheka Velikovic shot to fame in 1988 upon the release of her debut album Svetak Zanavetak, winning awards and selling a hell of a lot of records. In 1995, she married another Serb icon, someone who was as much an idol to the young nationalist men of Serbia as she was an idol to its girls, and she became Cheka Raznatovic. With the nation's most feared criminal at her side, her fame exploded as she was transformed from wholesome folk pop star to the icon, icon of the Dizelazzi, as she became Serbia's biggest star, tied to the relevance of her scandalous social life, dating gangsters even before getting hitched to the biggest one of the lot. The VHS, that's what we had before DVDs, <laughs> of her wedding to Arkan sold 100,000 copies itself, and she immediately found the doors to working with the best songwriters and producers suddenly open to her. For Western listeners, it's best to think of Cheka as the Serbian equivalent of Dolly Parton, but with crime. And now you have to think of the concept of a 25-year-old Cheka who is at the peak of her stardom, now sitting on the bench of Obelich, because she did sit on the bench, alongside a new manager in none other than Arkan's friend from his time in the embrace of Zvieta and one of the greatest Yugoslav players of all time, Dragoslav Sekularac. However, 1998 was Obelic's peak, 
their European forays would be short-lived after drawing firstly Bayern Munich in the preliminary round for the Champions League and following that up with a draw against Atletico Madrid in the first round of the UEFA Cup. Neither of whom were the sort of side that would lose to Obelic even if there was a half-time kneecapping. Albeit, if we did have Jesus Gil and Arkan meeting it again, it would have been quite the meeting of minds. While we'll mention 1999 shortly, Obelic's 15 minutes would come to an end on the 15th of January 2000. Sat filling out gambling slips in the lobby of the Hotel Continental in Belgrade, Zelko Arkan Raznatovic was assassinated and would die on the way to the hospital from gunshot wounds. His final words were reportedly about the Chelsea game that day. 10,000 people would turn up to his funeral five days later. For Obelic, they would remain competitive for two further seasons to the end of the 2001-2002 season, but further legal troubles at the top of the club, which included Cheka spending time in prison as part of an investigation into the assassination of the Prime Minister, tied to a general cleaning up of Serbian football, saw them drop down the table and out of the top flight in 2006. Obelic's experience competitively in Europe would actually not be that representative of Serb clubs in the late 90s, even if their ownership experience caused more headlines and if being owned by a bona fide war criminal probably wasn't actually that unrepresentative of how clubs were carrying out their business at the time. Sven and Sviesta in particular were enjoying minor success. In the 96-97 Cup Winners' Cup, they would get past Hearts in qualifying on away goals before battering Kaiserslautern at the Marikanar 4-0 in the first round to progress to the second round, where they would be defeated by eventual winners Barcelona. Partizan would reach the same stage in the final edition of that competition two years later, managing an away goals victory over Newcastle United in the first round, who younger listeners may be surprised to learn were actually at one time good. This leads us to the 98-99 season, one where Obelic would come second but be banned from Europe due to their connections to Arkan, in spite of said connections being more arm's length than they were, at, were when they were actually playing in Europe, with both Obelic and Champions Partizan finishing the season unbeaten. However, this was a truncated season courtesy of the war in Kosovo, as the season would be called on the 14th of May due to the NATO bombings. That was hardly the only change between the league as ended the 97-98 season, and that would f- which would finish the 99-2000 season. For a start, 98-99 saw the league move to a simple 18-side, 34-game league, albeit it was called after 24, with the final games having come on the 20th of March. The fudge to fix things was that no sides would get relegated, and the sides in the promotion places in the second tier would get sent up, meaning the league should have had 22 sides in it for 99-2000. However, one of those sides in the top flight was Pristina, who, perhaps unsurprisingly, had no intention of playing in the FR Yugoslav League and left over the break to join the Kosovan setup, which started in the 99-2000 season and basically would run parallel to the Yugoslav system, ahead of people starting to recognise that system on in till late in the noughties, but the international status of Kosovo is another subject for another time. There's only so much controversy we could do at this point. Leaving the second tier also 
would be Svenna's fiesta Gilani, who are now simply SC Gilani. So, in 1999-2000, the league, first league operated as a 21-side league with the second league reorganised into three regions, which brings the one and only mention in the podcast of the wonderfully named Vojvodina region side of Big Bull Bashinsky, who, as you may be able to guess, was sponsored by the local abattoir company. The first league would revert back to 18 sides for 2000-2001, with the second league undergoing a few changes each year, initially making a Montenegro-specific region, which will, of course, play out in a few episodes' time, because this particular arc is long enough already, and the events that lead Yugoslavia to change name and split for the final time need their own space to breathe. We have, therefore, three things to cover off ahead of the end of this episode. Why Serbian football had to clean itself up, how Slobodan Milosevic left the stage, and what happened to the UCK after NATO insisted they lay down their arms. To deal with the last of those first, and in doing so, end the Yugoslav wars once and for all in this podcast. Upon the end of the war in Kosovo, the UCK were told to disband, and four things happened. Some, most prominently Hashim Thaci, Ajim Sheku, and Ramush Haladinai would enter politics, with those three all serving time as Prime Minister with varying levels of success. Some would set up the TMK, which essentially became an organisation to assist peacekeeping in Kosovo. The other two things, however, would turn into groups that weren't done fighting. The first part of this would be the insurgency in the Presevo Valley, which came account about because, as part of the NATO settlement at the end of the war, a demilitarised strip of land separated Kosovo from Serbia. This strip of land was, as strips of land implanted by the West on places they don't really know very well so often are, in a silly place. And NATO forced Yugoslav forces to leave it completely, which gave a bunch of fighters that disliked Serbs the perfect place to stage attacks on the majority Albanian settlements close to the zone from, to attempt to justify a redrawing of the border, as it were, to facilitate Kosovan expansion. In total, around 300 attacks were launched, mainly on the town of Bujanovac, until NATO lost patience and invited the Yugoslav army in to sweep matters up in the late 2000s. But the second part of this would be exacerbated by that. During the Kosovan War, Macedonia, which had had its own complicated relationship with its Albanian minority, opened the border to refugees. Around 350,000 made their way across the border, which, when added to the fact that the country bordering them had economically collapsed and couldn't take Macedonian goods, meant that Macedonia entered its own period of economic hardship. In addition, amongst that 350,000 refugees were a number of UCK members, and they soon set themselves to mischief. While repression of the Albanian minority in Macedonia was nothing compared to that seen in Kosovo by the Serbs, for one, Albanian parties actually generally formed coalitions in Parliament to be part of the governing class of the nation, repression did still exist. And the moving in of people battle-hardened from Kosovo and still spoiling for a fight made a conflict of some form more or less inevitable. 
Attacks on police began by an organisation calling itself to the UCK, separate to the other one but inspired by it, and this quickly escalated into a full-blown conflict around the border areas between Kosovo and Macedonia, particularly around the city of Tetovo. Further complicating all of this was that a look at a map will show you a key difference between FR Yugoslavia and Macedonia, namely that while Belgrade is far away from Kosovo, Skopje is very close to Tetovo and Kumanovo, the two population centres of the Albanian minority. The conflict itself lasted throughout the first half of 2001 and can be summed up pretty quickly. The UCK was unable to make any major gains, attempting to take both Tetovo and Kumanovo and ending up getting only villages surrounding them and then eventually being beaten back from those. Given NATO was still in the region anyway, they also tried to keep everyone on a tight leash. And with the Macedonian army being broadly competent and disciplined, save for the killings in Ljubotan the day prior to the Ohid agreement that ended the conflict fully was signed. This took many grievances of the Albanian community away, although it's fair to say that full equality in the eyes of the law compared to the wording of it is still not something that's entirely present within the nation today. Something around 200 people died in the conflict as a whole, in what would be the final conflict of the Yugoslav Wars, albeit it is fair to say that things could easily have been much worse. It may have taken an entire decade, but finally the spectre of war in the former Yugoslavia was going to fade. Speaking of spectres, next to chalk off on our list is to consign Slobodan Milosevic to the history books. As we saw a couple of episodes back, Milosevic's rule had turned swiftly to electoral malpractice when things weren't going his way ahead of the war in Kosovo. During the early stages of that conflict, the mistakes of the protesters in 1996 and 97 were reviewed by those opposed to Milosevic and saw the opposition morph into the organisation known as Otpol. Otpol formed in direct response to restrictions on the free press put in place by then Minister for Information and now the Head of State, Alexander Vucic. They were a bit like Deimos in Slovenia a decade prior, and Otpol would be an extremely broad church with the unifying factor being that Milosevic and his government were wrong rather than necessarily showing any direct policies as to what they would do instead. This way, they appealed across the political spectrum without ever also falling into infighting about how to do things. The government was immediately heavy-handed with them, fining newspapers who carried adverts from Otpor and imprisoning some who painted the Otpor symbol on buildings. Such action swiftly gave Otpor coverage and momentum and opposition parties began to squabble over them. Throughout 1999 and 2000, Otpor's membership exploded because of this, as opposition parties encouraged their own members to join Otpor so as to sway Otpor one way or another in their favour. In July 2000, early elections were announced for September, and everything hit the fan. On the 25th of August 2000, Ivan Stambolic, whose support had gotten Milosevic into power of the Serbian Communists, all the way back in the mid-80s, was kidnapped and murdered. 
while through the election campaign he was simply believed known to have disappeared. In 2005, it was found that Stambolic's death had been ordered from the desk of Milosevic with the aim of preventing Stambolic being an opponent in the election. Meanwhile, Okpo's direction of simply opposing Milosevic unified the opposition to him as 18 opposition parties formed the DOS coalition, with Vojislav Kostinica as their candidate in the election. Okpo's part in this would be to stir up the youth vote and get abstainers to the polls. Turnout would be over 12% higher in, than in the 1996 election, and that spelled trouble for Milosevic. It's fair to say that the election for electoral fraud attempted was blatant. Kostanica won a landslide, but the Electoral Commission denied it and produced some weird results, such as Milosevic winning in large margins in Montenegro and in Kosovo, in spite of both regions generally boycotting the vote, even if some Kosovan Albanians did actually vote for Milosevic in the hope that his incompetence would lead them to independence sooner. The numbers, quite literally, didn't add up, and the people knew it. Miners in Kolobara went on strike, hitting Serbia in its energy supply, and a week later hundreds of thousands were on the streets of Belgrade protesting with little police opposition. It would become known as the Bulldozer Revolution, after a plant operator, Joe Jokic, used his heavy machinery to drive straight into the state TV headquarters. On the 5th of October 2000, having originally stated he would resign at the end of his term in 2001, Milosevic instead resigned immediately. Six months later, he was in a jail cell and on his way to The Hague. He would die in 2006 from a heart attack during his trial. He would never be convicted for his part in the war crimes in Bosnia, Croatia or Kosovo. And judgment of him remains only that which was passed by history rather than one passed by the courts. Which leaves us with our third loose end to tie up. Why Serbian football need to clean up. Now, that may seem a somewhat obvious statement to make, given that, come the end of the war in Kosovo in 1999, the team that had come second in the shortened season were owned by a criminal come warlord, and also that chairman were getting shot as a fairly regular occurrence. But it's important to note that they weren't necessarily that abnormal, as we touched upon earlier. Those who ran football were still those who were running football at the start of the decade, with Miljan Miljanic remaining the dominant figure of football in the nation, much as he had been for the past three decades. But 99 and 2000 would be a turning point of generations. On the pitch, New names as the stars of the league that would lead the nation into the next decade in Mateja Kersman and Sasa Ilic started to rise to prominence. In the stands, however, tragedy struck. At the 113th Fischiti Derby in October 1999, pyrotechnics fired into the north end of Sviestepans of the Partizan Stadium, renamed from the JNA in 1989, hit Asa Radovic a 17-year-old fan, in the chest. Partizan had just scored, and the Grabari fired multiple rockets from their end with most directed towards the Zvesta end. Radovic was not the only fan hit, but he was the, the one unlucky enough to have the rocket hit him in his upper chest, 
which severed his aorta, killing him almost instantly. The match, however, continued. With help from members of Partisan staff, the Grabari had smuggled flares and ten larger flare gun rockets through the home dressing room. Multiple Partisan fans would be convicted of various responsibilities around Radovich's death over the coming couple of years. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. The years between 1996 and 2001 placed all of Serbian society at a massive turning point, where the sins of Milosevic and the burdens of the end of the Yugoslav era made clear just how badly things were going. While throughout this little arc covering this period everything has referred to the nation as FR Yugoslavia, the strains between the two constituent parts of the nation of Serbia and Montenegro were already showing, and while describing FR Yugoslavia as FR Yugoslavia is obviously the correct thing, way to go about things because that was their name, it's also correct to say that FR Yugoslavia was essentially acting entirely at the behest of Serbia. While Montenegro had had a small independence movement prior to remaining with Serbia in 1992, getting dragged into economic crises and wars by Milosevic soon drove a massive wedge between the two. In 1996, Montenegro began using a different currency to Serbia, the Deutschmark and eventually the Euro. In 1997, elections split Montenegro into pro and anti-Milosevic blocs, with the anti-Milosevic bloc under Milo Djukanovic coming out victorious as a generation that had come to power in the first place based on the wise decision to hitch their flag to Milosevic in the 80s, split over whether to continue following him as his star waned. While it will be a few episodes till we get there, Montenegro was on its way to becoming a nation, as the post-Milosevic settlement of Serbia was going to be tricky. The head of the snake may have been cut off, but the kleptocracy he had built was going to prove far more difficult to break. Next time on the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, we go north to Slovenia, the region with the least in the way of footballing heritage prior to independence, started to make its way into a new millennium on the back of one star, Zlatko Zavic. Yes, thank you very much for listening. We have done, done, done the Yugoslav Wars. Um, I should probably... It's probably fair to make the point that um, we started that particular <laughs> war um, 14 episodes ago was the Slovenian War in episode 64 and just the entire disintegration of Yugoslavia if you want to um, count that well that actually goes all the way back to about episode 51. So yes there's a full third of this <laughs> podcast timeline has been about um, around a decade decade and a half of time which I think just goes to show how how wild those years were in so many aspects um, and you know obviously the divides that were there still resonate to this day um, I hope over the past three episodes I've dealt with what's a very very controversial and touchy subject to this day with an appropriate um, 
neutrality while also pointing out that there are certain people who really um, did act in a very reprehensible manner. Uh, so yes, um, if you <laughs> enjoyed that, sharing is caring. Please do let friends, Romans and countrymen know uh, about this because the more listeners we get, the nicer I feel. Um, if you have, uh, if you've listened to this through a podcast service, which offers you the opportunity to review, then please do leave a review, preferably like a, a good one, because um, that's better for me than a bad one. Um, otherwise, um, it behoves me just to say thank you very much, as always, for taking the time to listen. If you would like to keep up with any updates on um, what's going on in the wild and wacky world of football in the region, please do follow me on Twitter at HYFPRW. Um, we have a lot of things that are going to be going on there over the summer just in terms of features of um, football in the region over this summer because it is a big turning point of the summer for a lot of clubs. Um, but yes, otherwise, I will catch you next time. Thank you.